Technology and the Sea. Fascination Marine Technology. A podcast by Bärbel Fiening in cooperation with the German Association for Marine Technology, GMT. Welcome to this podcast episode all about how we are finally learning more about our oceans. Only 8% of the ocean floor has been mapped. We know far too little, for example, about the quality of the water. We've briefly touched on the ocean pack a time or two here in the podcast episodes. Avid Fuchs has it on board the Dagmaon during his Arctic expeditions to collect marine data even in the most remote places. And Boris Herrmann, while participating in the Vendée Globe, also had an ocean pack on board. They are developed by the company Subsitec from Kiel. Nuno Nunus explained me exactly how the ocean pack works and what data can be collected with it. We know too little about the oceans and you built the ocean pack. Avid Fuchs and Boris Herrmann already talked about what is the ocean pack? How does it work? The ocean pack is a, a collective name for different instruments. So the ocean pack that, uh, that Boris Hermann and Arvid Fuchs have is a compact version of an instrument that was initially built for scientists to use in research ships. Maybe we go back a little bit in the history of these uh, oceanographic measurements, say some 100 years ago. People uh, wanted were interested in, in measuring basic quantities like temperature of, of seawater and salinity at different depths. And what they would do is they would go out uh, with a research ship to the position they were interested in in the ocean and they would literally throw thermometers overboard on ropes or cables, lower them to the depth they were interested in and fix the temperature of, of the water at those depths. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is a, a very painstaking way. It takes a long time to get data and you get very few data points. And then in the 50s and 50s or 60s or so, with uh, the advent of electronic sensors, it became possible to do continuous profiles. So you basically the same process. You go with a ship to a station and then you lower the instruments and you get continuous data for the whole profile until the, uh, the sea bottom or whatever mm -hmm. depth you're interested in. So you, you you generate a lot more data in this way, in a much easier way. And then people found that, actually, because during transit, these research ships are continuously taking seawater from the surface for cooling the engines, for instance. And so somebody thought, that why not measure the, the surface temperature and salinity all the time? So these are the first so-called underway systems because they measure the, the properties of seawater underway yes. while the ship is going. And eventually, of course, it became interesting to measure not only temperature and salinity, but more properties. Mm -hmm. And that's basically where the first ocean pack, which uh, another name that's, uh, that's commonly used is a ferry box. Uh, that's basically... What it's trying to do is to expand this principle of underway measurement to more parameters. Mm -hmm. So the ocean pack that, that Subsitec builds is exactly that. It's trying to integrate more parameters into these underway systems in a way that requires minimal attention, minimal maintenance during the transit of the ships. So which data are you collecting? Which parameters? 
so temperature and salinity are the basic ones. And then it depends a little bit on the project. So right now, also because of climate-related questions, uh, PCO2 is uh, in seawater is is a, is a parameter that now also ca is, can be counted as as a basic parameter. And then it depends a little bit on the focus of the scientific program. So dissolved oxygen would be a common option. Uh, chlorophyll or algae would be another option. Uh, then it, it really depends. There's the turbidity can also be measured. There's a, a, a large number of parameters that can be integrated into an ocean pack. And in fact, that's the two typical situations, scientific institutions uh, that come to us and say, we want to equip a research ship with this kind of instrument. And we're interested in measuring these parameters with these sensors. And we look at how easy it is to integrate or in the best case scenario, we already have experience of integrating exactly those sensors. And if not, we look if it's possible to do those. If it's not possible, we try to suggest alternatives. Sometimes they say we're interested in these parameters, but we don't really know what sensors are best suited. What can you um, suggest? And so there's a little bit of a discussion and adjustment of what the best setup is. But we're still talking about these rather large systems. So you can uh, imagine them as a large fridge. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a, a large yeah, fridge-size uh, instrument with a controller, with a, an interrupted power supply, with a data logger so where all the data gets stored, with a through-flow system for the seawater, and then chambers where the sensors are integrated. And it's mainly integrated in research vessels or...? And Yeah, the, these kinds of systems are typically integrated either in research ships or larger ships, ferry ships or, or merchant navy, uh, where the uh, where the firms are interested in contributing to data gathering efforts. But then we also had a challenge, uh, so to say, and the question was put if it was possible to, to make these units, maybe not so many parameters, maybe only a couple of sensors, but to make them more compact so that they could fit in a sailing yacht, in a in a racer, in an ocean racer. At the beginning, most people thought this would be impossible and that it would be very difficult to build something that was robust enough for the, the continuous vibration and shock environment that an ocean racer presents. But uh, in the end, we managed to find solutions for the problems uh, that presented along the way. And we now have, in effect, uh, the, the so-called ocean pack race, Uh, which is a very compact instrument that can be fitted uh, in in the limited space that's available in a racing yard and that uh, operates unattended, basically unattended. It has to be uh, serviced at the beginning and at the end of a race, but it operates continuously for up to three months without any data gaps, without any problems, in very, very rough conditions. And So no additional work for the skipper? No additional work or very little work for the skipper depends a little bit on on the setup that they have. Uh, but for instance, Boris Herrmann in in the Vendée Globe sailed around the world and going through uh, mighty storms in the Indian Ocean and even uh, almost in the end of the race, bumping into a fishing trawler. And the the system even just... that incident didn't stop the uh, the data collection. Nope, not at all. Not at all. Oh, really? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how hard he bumped into the trawler, <laughs> uh, but uh, but I think it caused some damage to the boat. Yes, definitely. But uh, the ocean pack race just 
kept ticking away, delivering data. Um, I mean, this was very exciting for us because uh, Boris decided to make the data available in real time on a data portal that was open to anybody who was interested. And uh, I mean, this, this is the raw data before it gets calibrated by scientists and prepared for further studies. So it's the raw data, which um, is sometimes a bit, it's not always easy to make that data available because sometimes there are problems with the data and you need to look at what exactly caused those problems. And for us, it was very it's very exciting to see that the instrument just delivered good data, no data gaps, uh, despite all the uh, the rough treatment that it was exposed to. And uh, so we were very, very happy about this. In fact, during the race, we would often start the day with the first cup of coffee, uh, just quickly looking at what happened overnight with the race and how are they doing, what does the data look like. And uh, so that was also also a very exciting time for us. I think your first look was at the data and not at Boris Herrmann's uh, position. No, no, I think we were also quite interested. <laughs> uh, we were also quite interested. I mean, we had two two boats uh, on that race uh, equipped with ocean pack race uh, systems. And of course, we, it was very interesting for us to see how are, how are they doing and then also looking at the data. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, the second boat was a French skipper, uh, Fabrice Amedeo and um unfortunately had problem i believe with the mast and he had to, to abandon the race in oh, really? uh, in cape town yeah it was a pity because he had also not only the ocean pack race but also a microplastic sampler Ooh. Uh, so he was collecting daily samples of microplastics along the racetrack and he has done that in in other races before and and collected very interesting data sets And so we were also very keen to see uh, what would happen this time in this edition of the Van der Globe. But unfortunately, sometimes problems happen and uh, and that's how it is. So microplastic data can't be collected by the ocean pack. It's a different instrument, yeah. So the, the ocean pack race, uh, as a standard, uh, collects temperature and salinity. Again, going back to the beginning, mm -hmm. those are the standard oceanographic variables and PCO2. Yes. Um, And it can be extended with another one additional compact sensor. But those three are the three standard parameters, temperature, salinity, PCO2. So are there many men or women like Boris Herrmann who have the ocean pack race on their ship? Or is it something very new? It is something relatively new. Um, so I think the, the first efforts started maybe not quite so new already i think some 10 years ago that this effort started and i think uh, in some five years ago 2017 i believe was the first race where we had racing yachts equipped with systems i think this was uh, for the volvo ocean race at the time i believe we had th three boats equipped i think three or four um and so this was the, the first real life test of whether the systems, whether the ocean pack race worked, and it worked very well. And um, so the further developments were sort of to, to, to make the system even lighter, uh, even more robust. And uh, for us, it was a big success to see how well the newer version, the, the sixth generation ocean pack race worked um, a year ago. The last edition of the Van der Globe, I think, finished around about a year ago. So that was very interesting for us. And at the moment, there are, I believe, six to eight racing teams that have ocean pack race systems installed. And what we start seeing now 
is also a little because these efforts from the racing teams are attracting more attention from the public. We start seeing people uh, interested in installing uh, these ocean pack race systems in their own private boats. And typically the story we hear uh, from from uh, people approaching us is that they say, we've heard about these systems and we're planning to um, to take uh, some time, a year or two years or three years for, for our own private um, project sailing around the world. And it would be really interesting because uh, we really worry about the environment and we find that it's very important and we would like to contribute to the effort of gathering data. And we heard that uh, that this data from the remote areas from the Southern Ocean where not not so much data is available, that uh, the scientists are very interested in this, and uh, can we help? And uh, so that's that's very interesting for us. Um, we now start seeing people interested in installing this in in their own boats, and we're very happy that we can provide a solution for them. So that's a new development. Up to now, these ocean packs, the the bigger ones, the fridge-sized ones, are installed on international research vessels. In which countries? A little bit all over the world, really. Um, the systems that come to mind uh, from the last few years are the, the big icebreakers in Australia and, and in China. Uh, of course, the Polarstern uh, also has an ocean pack uh, installed. There's uh, also uh, an oceanographic vessel in France, in Belgium, in Russia. We also have some systems in Japan. So a little bit all over the world in the the nations that have the resources to have oceanographic programs and, and uh, oceanographic vessels. I think we kind of more or less were represented a little bit all over the world. Um, this is a global community. This is a very international community. So uh, Germany has a handful of, of uh, research vessels, of course, but um, but just the nature of the um, of the effort is is very international. And and collecting data is an international task. Collecting data from the oceans because that's what we need. Yeah, it's such a it's such a big task that it doesn't make sense to to rely on only a, a small number of nations to do it. It's uh, what makes sense is for international coordination to happen so that everybody can contribute um, mm. within within their areas of influence. And is there an international awareness that we do need more data or is it far more developed in other countries than in Germany? I, I think it's fairly fairly global by now um, I think I mean the discussions that, uh, that we keep uh, hearing in the media about um, uh, climate change and and uh, climate modelings and the limitations of climate modelings and I, I think by now it's fairly not only for scientists I mean for scientists that's a given no? the scientists know that, uh, that more data is needed to to uh, uh, to make Uh, the climate models and climate predictions uh, better uh, and more reliable, but I think that is by now that's filtered out to the public and and, and not only in a number of nations, uh, not only sort of in Europe and North America, but I think it's it's really global by now. Also because these these topics affect everybody, and so it's it's not regional interest. It really is a global it's a global topic. Yeah. 
And, and in a way that reflects what we're seeing now, of course, we have people contacting us preferentially or more often from countries uh, where people have the resources to think about this kind of project, but there's global interest in, in, in these developments. So th these ocean packs are for monitoring the surface ocean. So they're installed on ships and basically, the, uh, typically the water intake is near the surface, maybe in, in the first four or five meters below the surface. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you're interested in, uh, in knowing what's happening below the surface at some depth that's interesting for you or all the way from the top to the bottom. You want profiles of, of the seawater properties. And uh, we also build systems that are meant for using below the surface in, in the deep ocean. Not, not all sensors uh, are suitable for all depths, but uh, we have a, a number of systems that can be deployed down to about 6,000 meters and wow. are in fact now developing a system uh, that, uh, that is meant to be deployed in the Marianas Trench, so uh, 11,000 meters um depth that is uh, that is a, a a very interesting challenge but the the 6000 meters that that's fairly standard that, those are standard products uh, okay. and as i said not all sensors can be integrated in systems to, that are suitable for that depth uh, and also sometimes people are interested in measuring what's happening at 50 meters or at 100 meters or 300 meters depth so in the same way that the ocean pack can monitor a number of different parameters, temperature, salinity, CO2, dissolved oxygen, and so on, we also have uh, underwater uh, systems that can monitor the same parameters. Now, of course, for the systems that are installed on a ship, they have access to a power source. They can be plugged into the, to the ship's power supply, and so that's not a problem. But for the, the systems that are underwater, um, this has to be solved in a different way. And uh, so when, when Subsea Tech started developing these systems, uh, there wasn't really any good solutions. And so we started developing our own uh, using lithium-ion cells. They were coming in their own for portable products like phones and, and laptops and so on. And... Uh, of course, the expertise with uh, with batteries underwater is that, of course, salt water, which is a problem for sensors because of corrosion, is a much bigger problem because salt water conducts electricity, and so it becomes much more of a problem. And that's where the expertise that we had from uh, from building uh, instruments for the marine environment, uh, we could transfer that to building underwater batteries um, that were reliable, safe. Um, and um, very good quality and eventually word, word spread that these batteries originally were built for sensors were, were so reliable and that they were so well made that uh, people started asking if they could be adapted to different applications like vehicles, ROVs or AUVs. Underwater vehicles. Yeah, re remotely operated vehicles or autonomous vehicles. And um, so step by step, we started sort of expanding the into different areas where underwater uh, power is critical. The vehicles, underwater or subsea power storage, 
heavy equipment, uh, for instance, in, in the offshore industry, where large equipment needs to be operated, for instance, to, to guarantee the safety of, of operations, and where it's not practical to deliver power over long cables, um, it makes more sense uh, to have a local power storage that can quickly supply the large currents that are needed to operate um, some of these heavy equipment, large valves and, and things like this. Uh, and so using this expertise from the marine environments to make sure that we could produce batteries that are capable of operating safely underwater, uh, we started getting involved in these larger projects where the certification of the products plays a large role. These these larger projects have very specific uh, sets of conditions that all products that are integrated have to meet. And that meant that we had to look very carefully at how robust the, the electronics, for instance, the, the, the housings that we were building, how robust they were. Did they meet these conditions? And that forced us uh, to to make certain modifications to to make sure that we met those conditions. And now comes a a, a feedback that allows us to to come up with the ocean pack race that can that can operate for three months without uh, in storms. Is that all this experience that we developed because we had to meet these very stringent conditions for the, for the larger batteries, of course. We use the same standards for the monitoring systems, uh, which means that what started as uh, delicate sensors that come from a laboratory setting and that are then adapted uh, for use in in the sea in larger ships, then gets adapted through our expertise for the larger batteries, gets adapted so that it can operate in really much, much rougher conditions than were ever considered to begin with. And I think that's our strength, is combining these experiences from the two different realms and sort of having the experience flow in both directions to make sure that both of them benefit. That's a good point. So what about you? No, no, you are sitting in Kiel. Do you love the ocean as well? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so... Um, Very much so. I originally come from from Porto, uh, from Portugal. So right next to the sea, uh, the, the sea is a, is a constant presence uh, in everyday life. Uh, so it's it's not much of a surprise that I ended up in Kiel, uh, or at least near the sea. I mean, the weather is quite different. The, the weather is a bit different, uh, especially looking outside now. The winds are bending the trees. Uh, you sometimes get that as well. Uh, but I think that's more different for me uh, here in, in the Baltic is the waves are not there. <laughs> that's very strange. But uh, but it's it's very nice. I like it. I like it very much here. It's uh, it's a very pretty part of the world. Uh, I think once, once you grow in a place where you have the sea next to you, uh, just sort of this this open space, this uh, this this vast uh, space that uh, that you get where you you don't really see where the world ends. Uh, I think that's something that you get used to uh, if you if you uh, if you grow up near the sea. And if you don't have that anymore, then you miss it very much. Uh, so I think I did live uh, in other places, but I think I always had to come 
to to a place near the coast. Make sure that every now and then I can go and and just look in the distance and not see where it ends. It just it's 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 a kind of thing that makes you realize how how big the world is, how much bigger it is than your interactions uh in daily life and uh sort of opens up your mind to think about a bigger scale, about the world as as a whole and not just not just sort of your your little worries in everyday life, which you also need to worry about those. But it's also good to to be able to take a step back and think, okay, but there's there's bigger things. Thank you. Thank you, Nuno Nunes. You're welcome. Thank you. That was today's podcast episode. I talked to Nuno Nunes from Subsitec Kiel. Two weeks from now, we will publish the next episode. I recommend subscribing to this podcast. And I would appreciate a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Bye. Technology and the Sea Fascination Marine Technology Podcast by Bärbel Feening in cooperation with the German Association for Marine Technology, GMT. Music